Welcome to Pensive Series. Rick Edelman is the chairman and CEO of Edelman Financial Services, the author of several personal finance books and the host of The Rick Edelman Show. Edelman has been ranked multiple times the number one independent financial advisor in the U.S. by Barron's. In the late 1990s, his company was named by Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest-growing privately-held financial planning firm in the country for three years in a row. In this episode, we talked about his journey of starting his business and the many lessons he learned along the way. Where, where did you grow up? Grew up in South Jersey, outside Philadelphia. And how was it? Like, how was it growing up there? Uh, it was wonderful. I, I grew up. I, you don't know how it is until after you've left and you're all grown up. But looking back on it, uh, I had the Ozzie and Harriet childhood. Um, two fabulous parents living a upper middle class lifestyle. Um, two older brothers who tormented me to no end, uh, and um, and it was wonderful. My parents were um, small business owners, entrepreneurial, and so that uh, was taught me everything I know about business and, um, and planning and, uh, and the nature of advice. And it was, to me, very natural as an adult to be in a, uh, a field like that I'm in today because it was what I grew up with. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a great childhood. And how, how did you think about your future when you finished high school? Well, you know, the problem of, being, of growing up in a middle class or upper middle, middle class uh, lifestyle where your parents um, spoil you, I was the youngest, so my older brothers claim, and they're probably right, that I was spoiled. Um, to me, it was a choice of going to college or getting a job. Well, I wasn't going to go get a job, so I chose college. And uh, that, of course, was the greatest decision ever. Not that I really had a choice. My parents weren't going to have it any other way. And um, my college education was uh, extremely formative. And, you know, they, they, looking back, I think they say you're in, your, in high school you, you develop your body, and in college you develop your mind. Hmm. And that was certainly true for me. And so the, the education that I got, I went to school in South Jersey, uh, to Glassboro State, which is now Rowan University. Uh, the education I got there was uh, incredible, uh, extraordinarily valuable and helpful, and uh, set me on the path uh, where I am today. And how did you develop your mind in college? I spent. I, I took my brother, my brother's advice. Um, my older brother went to Pitt and uh, was five years ahead of me, and and he gave me uh, two fabulous pieces of advice about college. Um, the first, which was. Uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but proved to be really effective. He said, take extra classes every semester and take classes every summer so that when you get to your senior year, you don't have to take any classes in the spring. Um, in other words, get college done in three and a half years because you're going to want to just party in your spring semester of your senior year. And he was absolutely right. So I followed that advice, which worked out great. But the real advice he gave me, which was extraordinarily important, he said, spend as much time as you can hanging out with, with faculty. And so that's what I would do. Uh, I was constantly in the faculty, uh, uh, in the department. I was constantly in the faculty lounge. I used to go out um, to bars and restaurants with my professors all the time. And instead of just hanging around with fellow undergrads where we're talking about whatever it is undergrads talk about, I, you know, I had quadruple the knowledge in education because I was just constantly talking shop uh, with 
with my professors who um, welcomed any student to do this. I wasn't special. It's just that very few ever asked, hey, can I go with you to that bar? We also had the advantage back then is I was allowed in the bar because drinking age was 18. <laughs> Kids today can't really do that because you have to be 21. But I, back then, we were allowed to drink at age 18, and I was allowed to go with them into the bars. And that's where at least my professors tended to go. Is there a particular lesson that stands out? Um, curiosity um, is the key. Um, ask lots of questions. Probe. Don't accept um, what you're told. Um, make sure that you get it validated, verified, proved, pro in an ideal world by yourself, uh, but if not, from reliable sources. Um, and, re and when you do that, you begin to realize that the world's pretty complicated, that there's a reason things are the way that they are, that people who have extreme views uh, tend to dismiss the fact that others have opposite views. And um, not to suggest that opposing views are right, but simply that they exist. And when you understand that those views exist, it helps you frame your own um, view of the world. Is there, was there a particular turning point uh, in, during that time that prepared you for your career, looking back? Probably the most effective thing that I did was get involved with student government. Uh, at Glassboro in those days, the students ran the college. We really did. We had a budget. Uh, this is back in the 1980s, uh, actually the 1970s. I graduated in 1980. And we had a budget of over $600,000, which was an astronomical sum uh, for the 1980s. And uh, we used that money to fund all extracurricular events. We paid for the football team out of that budget. We paid for every sporting event. We paid for uh, every extracurricular event, every student club, every fraternity and sorority on campus, every cultural event. Everything was paid for out of this budget. And we had total control over it. The administration gave us guidance um, to make sure we didn't do anything really stupid. But it was entirely of our choosing of how we spent the money. And putting a bunch of 19-year-olds in control of astronomical sums of money taught uh, huge lessons um, politically, financially, uh, fiscally, um, uh, that was an education that no classroom could provide. And then when you finished college, how did you think about your career and the future, the, the first steps? Well, my goal was politics. Um, I was working, uh, I interned for a congressman, uh, our local congressman, and I graduated with the intention of joining his staff on Capitol Hill. And so I immediately went to Washington, D.C. I was in D.C. within two weeks of graduating and very quickly realized after spending an incredibly short period on Capitol Hill that I really didn't like politics, didn't like Capitol Hill, but loved Washington, D.C. area, so stayed. And uh, my now wife, uh, Jean, who was a year behind me at Glassboro, uh, as soon as she graduated the following year, she uh, joined me, and we've been in uh, the, the, the D.C. area uh, ever since. And after um, uh, several years, we realized um, the importance of planning for our future. Uh, most, you know, 20-somethings are pretty oblivious to that. Um, you, know, you ask a typical 20-year-old, you know, long-term planning, and they're, they think you're talking about Friday. Uh, and we were young newlyweds and wanted to buy a home one day, and so we went to a financial planner and s sought advice on how to save to buy a home and, and so on. I was writing. Uh, that was my career. I was a, 
communications um, uh, career. I was a journalist and, and uh, involved in uh, writing, and I was writing for some financial publications at the time, which is what made me realize, you know, we ought to get some financial advice of our own. And it turned out that the advisor we went to uh, was a crook. Um, he gave us fraudulent advice, uh, told us to lie on our mortgage application. And it really infuriated Gene and me. Uh, we didn't know much about financial planning, but we knew enough to know that you shouldn't lie and cheat your way to success. And so that's kind of when the light bulb went off. And we said, we looked at each other and said, you know what, if this guy can be in business giving that kind of advice, there has to be a better way. So why don't we do this and do it right? And so Gene went to work for um, a brokerage firm. Um, I went and joined a small advisory firm. And the intention was we would start our own practice after a couple of years. But after about six or seven months, we did it. And we owned our own practice uh, ever since. That was 1987. And the focus of our business was born out of the anger that we had of that advisor we went to. Uh, we were so angry at the bad advice he gave us that we said, we're going to teach people how it really works. We're going to show people how money works, how to save, how to plan for college for your kids, how to buy a home, how to save for retirement. We're going we're gonna to learn how to do this ourselves, and then we're going to teach others what we've learned. And that was the basis of our firm, was financial education. And today, 30 years later, uh, financial education is still the basis of our firm, and we, I think we probably do more financial education than any advisory firm in the country. Was there any moment when you started out where you felt stuck, where you felt like, we don't know how to deal with this, uh, but then you, you know, sort of found a solution? Yeah, the real challenge for us was when we started, we were in our 20s, and we were in the Washington, D.C. area where neither of us had grown up. Our families were back in New Jersey and New York. And we had only just moved to the area, so we had no family in town, and we also had no network. We didn't have any friends. We didn't know any of our neighbors. And we had entered a, uh, a career that was devoted to giving advice to people twice our age. So how could I convince someone who was old enough to be my father or old enough to be my grandfather and convince him to give me his life savings as I've only been in this business a year or two? And that was really challenging, of recognizing that I had developed a pretty good amount of expertise and knowledge about this subject. But how do I convince someone that I know what I'm talking about? And how do I persuade them to trust me, that I know what I'm doing and that I'm going to look out for their best interests? And that's when I called on the education that I got from Glassboro of saying, uh, you know, I'm a communications uh, expert too. I have a degree in this subject. So I recognize the importance of mass media, that if I'm going to get somebody twice my age to listen to me, that person needs the confidence of a third party saying that I'm worth talking to. And that's what led me onto the radio and eventually television and lots of media interviews. Uh, because back in the day, it, um, I'm kind of making myself sound really old here, which I guess I am. Um, but it's a mindset. To, yeah, it's a mindset. You're right. Uh, today, anybody can publish anything anywhere thanks to the Internet. Everybody can have a blog. Everybody can post on Twitter or what have you. But back then, the only way to post is to get a writer or an editor to publish it. You couldn't self-publish a book. You had to get a major 
publisher in New York to agree to do it. And that was extraordinarily difficult. And so the public had the attitude that if this guy is on the radio or TV or has written a book, he has, in essence, gotten the seal of approval from somebody because they would not put somebody in front of you who wasn't legit. And so that was the turning point in our career, recognizing I need to persuade editors and producers and writers that I'm worthy of uh, being quoted or having a guest on their show. And um, that was the, uh, the growth of our firm and recognizing that it was a wonderful conduit for expanding our financial education efforts. Instead of teaching 20 people in a seminar, I could now reach tens of thousands in a broadcast. And so we were able to educate uh, huge numbers of people. Uh, my books now have more than a million copies in print. Uh, we'll do over a thousand seminars this year. Uh, we'll uh, have tens of thousands of people attend uh, our events. Um, untold numbers access our website. Uh, we have tens of thousands of, of subscribers to my monthly newsletter. Um, so it's it's been very gratifying that we've been able to leverage mass media and communications to use it as the conduit for our financial education work. So you mentioned you had to be persuasive. How did you like negotiate and persuade those editors at the very beginning? Well, it was easier then than today, partly because nobody else was providing this information. Back in the 80s and early 90s, the only outlet for financial advice were stockbrokers and insurance agents, the people trying to sell you stuff. There really wasn't anybody who f was familiar with the notion of financial planning. There was really nobody familiar with uh, the notion of saving for retirement in a strategic basis. The whole idea was, let's buy a hot stock. And so there were a lot of stock pickers out there, and there were a lot of guys like Jim Cramer uh, out there. But there really weren't any true advisors, at least not in, in the media world. So when I contacted uh, these gatekeepers, uh, the folks who controlled radio and television stations and newspapers, and uh, talked with them about the perspective that I offered, it was something new and different. There really weren't others out there offering the kind of content, uh, nor did they did others have the style and personality that, that I have. I'm not only am able to explain something, but I can make it pretty interesting and entertaining too, which is something I've learned over time uh, is a a trait not too many in my field have. And how did you develop initially the confidence that you that you realize, okay, I know as much as all these other guys um, who are doing this professionally? I'm pretty arrogant, uh, pretty cocky uh, in myself, and I have a pretty high degree of confidence in my abilities and in uh, in what I'm doing. And I, I think I'm self-aware as well, that if there's something I don't know, I'm not afraid to say so. I'm not afraid to say I don't know, but I'll follow it up with, but I'll go find out for you. And so uh, I know my limitations, and I um, look at a given client's situation, um, and I internalize it. If I were you, what would I want? And I provide that level of advice and service to that client, and the client is naturally going to enjoy it because they're, uh, I know that if I liked it and it would work for me, it'll probably work for you too. And what role did your uh, wife have in, in, in supporting you uh, in, in all these different ways because you started this also together? Yeah, the, the, we divided the business into two pieces, uh, the front office and the back office. The front office was me, meaning I did the advice and talked with clients. Gene did everything else. 
So everything, she was our first everything, the first receptionist, the first bookkeeper, the first um, legal expert signing uh, office leases and uh, computer contracts and uh, the first HR and the first IT and the first whatever. Jean did everything paperwork-oriented, process-oriented, uh, bookkeeping, record-keeping, client service, all of that kind of stuff. She left the advice to me. So we were a wonderful team, and as the firm grew, I kept firing Jean. Um, so I said, Jean, we're too busy. I need someone else to be the receptionist so you can go do this other thing over mm -hmm. here. And Jean, I need, I need you to stop doing this data entry, so I'm firing you from that. So let someone else do the data entry. I need you to go do this. And Jean, I need you to stop being the head of HR. i got to bring in an HR. So I need you to do this over here. And so Jean, we now have over 500 employees in our firm. And Jean has had every job in the place except one. She's mm -hmm. never been a financial advisor. Uh, but she has been everything, the first everything else in the firm and has trained virtually everyone in the firm. And she is still today the chief of culture. She's the office mom, so to speak, of ensuring that the cultural environment, uh, the family feel uh, of our firm is intact. One of the reasons we wanted to start our own practice is because we both had some pretty bad experiences working for other people. Jean was assaulted at a prior job. And we wanted to provide an office environment that was family friendly, that was respectful, that was safe, um, that gave people the opportunity to do what they wanted to do without office politics and a rumor mill and, and all of the corporate nonsense that too often exists elsewhere. And so a cultural environment and a family friendly environment is really important to us and, and Gene ensures that that uh, is still the case today. Did you have any rituals when you set the foundation for the culture and for, for the values that you know, your, your firm stands now for? Lots of rituals. Um, there's a lot of culture in our organization. In the early days, when we would hire somebody new, every existing employee would interview that candidate. We never hired anyone unless everyone was okay with it. Today, with 500 employees, we can't do that anymore, but we, we still have a group of staff from a variety of um, segments of the business involved in that process of the hiring, the recruiting, and the training and onboarding. Every staff member goes through a rigorous uh, initiation uh, orientation program that lasts weeks. Um, so many jobs we've been at where they hire you and your first day of work, you show up at a desk and that's it. And you're, what do I do now? Who do I do it with? Who's the guy sitting next to me? We go through a very elaborate process of acclimation, of getting them to know people in the firm, the procedures, the policies, the systems, understanding the history of the firm, who we are, what we do, why we do it the way we do it, who we do it for, uh, so that everybody is like-minded in that regard. Uh, I make a joke that I'm not interested in diversity, and my HR team hates when I say that because we are very diverse and we care a lot about it, but when I say I'm, I'm not interested in diversity, we're all like-minded in the sense of the client is number one. We are in the business to serve our clients and to give them an, uh, an experience that exceeds their expectations. And we'll do whatever it takes to serve that client. And that is consistent throughout the entire organization. Those who have direct client contact as well as people who don't, who behind the scenes are doing things that benefit the clients as well. So uh, that culture is uh, really important. Uh, and we extend it in a variety of silly ways too. Um, we have our glop days from time to time 
which is something Jean grew up with in her household where her father would pull out everything out of the freezer and they would just throw it all in a bowl in a big glob, every piece of ice cream and topping and mm. fruit and candy and whatever. And we create glop days in the office. Uh, we do lots of lunches and breakfasts and meals and we look for excuses to have celebrations and parties so we can have lots of cake and increasingly these days healthy food to my chagrin. Uh, and uh, uh, so we do a, a lot of things like that. Uh, and we celebrate in big ways, too. On our 10th anniversary, we took the entire company and their families to Disney World for four days. Uh, on our 25th anniversary, two years ago, we did the same thing. So we took 1,500 people. I heard Harry Potter uh, World opened. Uh, yes, we missed it. <laughs> Harry wasn't there when we were there, sorry to say. Um, but it was... Uh, uh, so we do a lot of, of fun things. We, we take the attitude that we're not here to have fun, but we want to have fun while we're here. And so we work really hard at helping and serving the client, and we work equally hard at uh, relieving that stress. So our stress-down days and our parties and such are designed to r recognize the hard work and talent of our clients, uh, that, that of our staff on the benefit of our clients. And, and how did it feel when, you know, you started this and then it became more successful, more successful? How did that feel? It's shocking, quite frankly. Uh, we... We're so focused on our business, just doing what we're doing on a daily basis, it never occurred to us that we were building something special until one day uh, we were named by Inc. Magazine as the 69th fastest growing company in America, which I was just shocked about. Um, and we were on that list three years in a row, which I was told is very rare for a, a private company to sustain its growth level um, to that degree over such a long period. And we were later named um, one of the best places to work. Um, uh, ultimately, I think we've won that award now three or four times over the years from different publications. And, uh, and different industry rankings have named us, depending on whose list you look at, um, the number one firm in the country. Uh, Barron's named me the number one advisor, independent advisor in the nation. They named me that three times. Other industry rankings name us one of the top three uh, in size, um, it's shocking to us that uh, it's gratifying. Um, it's not why we do what we do, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see that our hard work and our uh, efforts on behalf of our clients are receiving recognition. And what are you, what are you most proud of? Most proud of would have to be the... Um, the impact that we've had on so many lives. Um, we have over 30,000 clients now, many of whom have been with us since the 1980s and uh, 1990s. And watching them grow up, watching them uh, raise their children, send them off to college, enter retirement themselves, and do so uh, in financial security and comfort, uh, being able to uh, positively affect the lives of so many people who uh, may not have been able to uh, achieve the goals they had without our help. Um, and watching the uh, so many members of our staff grow in their professions and careers and achieve success in their own right. Our, our chief uh, financial officer just was named uh, one of the top CFOs by Washington Business Journal this week. Uh, we're, we're so wonderfully excited for him for that uh, very impressive and prestigious recognition. Uh, that's just an example of the type of uh, career growth and development we've seen among our own team. So it's the most gratifying thing are the people, are, are the fact that Gene and I have had the privilege of 
uh, working with some wonderful people, both clients and staff, and, and having a, a, a beneficial impact on their lives. And how do you make sure you keep that high standard of excellence? <sighs> training, training, training. Uh, reinforcement of the message on a daily basis with our entire staff. We work really hard to hire people who understand the service mentality, uh, who have the tools they need to deliver that, and have the ability to use those tools, um, using their judgment and abilities for the benefit of the client, not micromanaging them, not burdening them overly with process and policy and procedure, but letting them just do what the client needs, trying to avoid corporate nonsense as much as possible. And uh, it's just a, a constant reinforcement. But as I've mentioned to our staff, because we've grown so dramatically over the past few years, our staff has more than doubled in the past three years. Mm -hmm. uh, many of our staff, therefore, have not been around for the whole history. They don't know what it was like back in the day. Um, so we have to remind them. We have to tell them. We have to teach them our history. We have to show them who we were and how we did what we did and why we do it the way we do it and who we do it for. And, uh, and we're dependent on our staff who have been with us for a very long time. We have a large number of staff who have been with us for 15, 20 years or more. And it's up to them to carry the torch, to reinforce that message. Because Gene and I can't do it ourselves, not with 500 employees in 42 locations or whatever it is. So we're dependent on our, our management team to uh, make sure that uh, we don't dilute um, or lose the message uh, of who we are and what made us special. And if you could give your younger self or a millennial in their 20s uh, financial advice, what kind of advice would you impart? Start now. Uh, the most powerful tool that we all have for our financial planning is time. It's the one asset that can never be recovered. The most powerful tool is compound growth, and compound growth needs time. It doesn't need a lot of money. You don't have to have a lot of money to become wealthy. If you're 20 years old and you save $3 a day, i got to believe every 20-year-old can do that if they think about it. You know, a pack of cigarettes is twice that. A six-pack of beer is more than that. So 3 bucks a day at age 20, for the next 40 years, you'll end up with a million dollars. So it doesn't take a lot of money to become a millionaire. It takes time. If you wait until you're 40 to start, well, you've just squandered a huge opportunity. So uh, the most common complaint people give me is, that they wish they'd started 20 years earlier. So the message I would give to you today is to start now. Um, and if you don't know how to start, there are lots of people who will help you. You can read my books. You can go to my website. There are lots of others now. It's the good news was I was doing this alone in the 80s, financial education. Now there's an explosion. Look at, look at HuffPost. I mean, the amount of information you have on your site is I wish I was there 30 years ago. It's wonderful information. And the ability to access this content from whether it's radio, television, internet, print, stage, uh, there is no excuse for not knowing what to do or how to do it. You just need to get started now. And so here at Exponential Finance, hosted by Singularity University, and um, you, know, you weathered and thrived in all these different environments, and the world has been changing and changing and changing. How have you been able to adapt and like, integrate all these different things, how the world has changed, and sort of stay, stay competitive and you know, like stay on top of the game? It's lifelong learning. Um, the information gets out of date very quickly. Uh, new developments are always occurring. There's new research uh, being released on a daily basis from academia. And it is extraordinarily important that we devote massive amounts of time and energy to research. 
to coming to conferences like this and being around the, the smartest and brightest people uh, in, the, uh, in a variety of industries so that we can make sure that the advice we're giving our clients remains cutting edge, remains of most value to them, uh, that we're not living in the past. And so there is no alternative but lifelong learning. And um, most of our clients don't have the time to do it themselves. They're capable, but they just don't have the time. Uh, or they don't have the desire, and that's why they hire us, because they know I'm doing it on their behalf, uh, and my colleagues as well. And so that's really the key, is to keep studying, keep reading, keep learning, keep talking with others uh, in this field and in other fields, in academia, in government, uh, in the legislature, uh, and in the corporate environment, and uh, as well as, of course, the economic and financial worlds, uh, to make sure that the advice we're giving our clients is the advice that is in their best interest. And what's a piece of advice that's very empowering to people that you think most people undervalue? The advice that people tend to ignore the most is ironically the most effective advice, and that is to ignore the noise. Uh, as I mentioned, that, that Huffington Post has huge amounts of wonderful information. Um, there is a tremendous amount of valuable information in a variety of fields, in books and magazines, websites, blogs, radio, television, but there's also a lot of noise. And people have to learn how to separate information from noise. Um, for example, what's happening in the stock market today is noise. It makes no difference what the market does today. What's helpful is understanding long-term behavior of the stock market. When I say long term, I mean going back decades, hundreds of years, not days and weeks and months. So maintaining a long term perspective, recognizing that people who are giving you a hot tip is just noise. People who are teaching you how things work is valuable. A great example would be interest rates. If someone is predicting what interest rates are going to do, that's noise. Because there are hundreds of thousands of people providing advice on Wall Street, stock analysts and money managers and wealth advisors and fund managers and stockbrokers and financial planners. Everybody's got an opinion. That's what makes a market. But no one person is certain to be right all the time. So if somebody's predicting interest rates, what's going to happen next, that's just noise. You need to ignore it. On the other hand, if somebody is saying to you, here's what happens to bond prices if interest rates go up versus going down, well, that's education. That's information. In other words, I'm not predicting what interest rates will do. I'm simply telling you mathematically, here's what happens to the value of your bond if interest rates go this way versus that way. So learn how to separate noise from information, and that will help you dramatically in making effective financial decisions that are in your best interest. Okay. So one last question. Um, when you look to the future, how do you see the evolution of financial advisory, and um, how do you think people need to evolve their thinking? To, to stay on top? The nature of financial planning will change over the next five to ten years due to exponential technologies. Uh, exponential technologies are going to change virtually every aspect of life on our planet, and personal finance is not immune. People are going to be living longer, will be healthier longer. So although you'll be living into your 90s and beyond, you'll be healthier than ever, which means you'll be more likely to work longer than you are, which is important because if you're going to live longer, you're going to need more money. So the fact you'll be healthy enough to work is good, and you'll also be motivated to work because you're going to find golfing boring after the 20 years of doing it. So 
uh, we need to recognize that your future is going to change, that where you live uh, is going to be different than where you live today. Um, the career that you're in is probably going to be different because technology will eliminate some careers while it creates new ones. Uh, the economy is going to grow dramatically due to the global expansion of knowledge and education uh, and increased democracies all around the world. Uh, so the future is very, very bright. Um, but it's increasingly important to understand that your future is not what you probably thought it was going to be. And the nature of financial advice is going to change along with the times. Whereas historically, we gave our clients advice on saving for college for their kids. That's going to shift. We're not going to start to give our clients advice on lifelong learning for themselves because our clients are going to have to develop new skills to remain employable uh, in new careers that get developed. Um, as their life expectancy changes, they're going to need a new type of advice. Um, they're going to need changing advice with estate planning. Uh, they're going to need changing advice to help with their aging parents. Um, so there's a wide variety of areas where advice will change, but the need for an advisor will only grow. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.